So right away, I knew I wanted that. I wanted players to have a lot, a lot of narrative control in the game. And that doesn't play well with a survival horror game. Mm. Because if you if there is a chance to win, uh, players will always try to do so because that's what games are. Right. And I realized right away after that first session that those two ideals could not play well. It would always, one would always ruin the other. say that 10 Candles had a huge impact on the RPG world doesn't give it enough credit. If you mention horror RPGs and 10 Candles doesn't come up in the conversation, you're in the wrong conversation. I sit down with Stephen Dewey and we talk about his history, both with RPGs and with live action role playing. We explore many of the games that became the roots of 10 Candles. He tells us how reading A Quiet Year by Avery Adler forced him to change how he wrote 10 Candles. And we have an amazing conversation about why the TTRPG community is full of designers that are so supportive of each other. This episode, like all the content coming off the third floor, is possible because of the support of the patrons on Patreon. Shout out to some of our newest patrons, Stephen Palmer, Kenneth Kosherek, Kale Nyberg, Spider Double Zero X, Victor Wyatt, Lucas Falk, D.O.E., and Eric Salzweedle. Okay, sit back, relax. Enjoy my time with Steven. Okay. You want to see if you can tell if they're lying to you? Go ahead and roll. Ugh, sorry, you missed by three. Uh, yeah, you think they're telling the truth. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of Drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Deadbell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. Now try that again. <laughs> When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Welcome to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. Your host, Craig Shipman. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Stephen Dewey of Calvary Games, the makers of 10 Candles. Stephen, welcome to the third floor. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this ever since I found your little game and I took it out to the campsite. Uh, so every <laughs> year, um, or twice a year, I have a group of anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 20 people that come out camping and we do a whole week. And during the day, we do a lot of board games, uh, card games and things like that. And then at night, it's role playing games. And last, uh, in the last spring trip, I brought 10 candles and we, we did it with no other light, just the 10 candles. First time everybody playing it, first time ever running it. And it was a huge hit. So we're going to get all into that. Before we do, you've got to be subjected to the one question you've gotten in every single interview you've ever done, <laughs> but pretend nobody's heard your answers before. What I want you to uh, talk about is your gaming origin story, right? So at some point you knew nothing about role-playing games or tabletop sure. games. And then it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back there? We can go back. Let me take you back on a journey, a, a journey of a young, a young boy. Um, no, I, I got I got into gaming very young. Um, oh, yeah. As much as I I'd like to I would love to give myself credit for getting involved in it. A, a bit of it was my older brother who uh, when we were both fairly young he himself got into games and gaming. Um, he fell in with, you know, a friend of his that introduced him to Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. 
And I, all of this, I observed from a distance. Right. Um, he never really got bitten by that bug as badly as I did. When I got involved in it, it was immediately, I, I, was, I was like, this is something I'm going to be enjoying for the rest of my life. And my first involvement with it, with it was fairly diverse. Uh, I, while I did initially get pricked by Dungeons & Dragons 3rd edition at the time, that kind of spiraled off pretty quickly because what I got into was a combination of D&D 3.0, a combination of a local chapter of live action role playing oh, gamers wow. that were that my older brother was involved with. So I'd go off to my own campsite for a weekend, but I'd have a foam sword in a costume. Right. right. That, that I was very into theater at the time. So. That's just live action improvisational theater. And I loved that when I was in junior high school, high school um, and some combination, even in those early days of sort of doing my own thing. Like I distinctly remember when I was in junior high, getting a few of my friends together and running a game for them that was kind of D&D kind of rules systems that I borrowed from live action gaming and somehow made work around a table somehow just my own stuff literally ripping off plots from whatever fantasy book I was reading at the time uh, and constructing my own thing that we played for several years before I finally actually got an official D&D group when I went to high school. Um, I was invited by a friend of mine who was much older than me. Uh, I think he was a so he was a junior when I was, a you know, right into high school as a freshman. Right. And he had a group that was these two adults, <laughs> these two like full on adults that he knew, like family, friends, one of them, their son, who was younger than both of us uh, and two high school kids. It was a very mixed oh, match group. But it was OK. Yeah. What we do is we get together every Saturday and from noon until like 3 a.m. We play oh. D&D. Something that is impossible to yep. recreate in, in, in nowadays. But yep. every Saturday I was there uh, getting involved in that. That was chapter one. Of, <laughs> uh, that was the first act of my me getting into gaming. So I've got uh, this, questions about Act One before we yeah, move to Act go, Two. Go ahead, right. go ahead with those. So I would like to get a sense. I mean, for you to be, I mean, it's one thing for us to change the grappling rules, right, while we're playing mm -hmm. and making little adjustments and stuff. But it sounds like to me you were whole cloth, like creating Frankenstein monsters at a very young age. Now, as an adult looking back, do you have a sense of what drove you to that versus you know just reading modules and running modules and running the rules as written? I feel like that that age of just unbridled making games and playing them. Yeah, that sort of came from that magical age where I didn't know that that wasn't what I was supposed to do. Like, didn't I didn't know what the rules were. I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, there's like there's just a rule book where you can you could buy it and just have a game. <laughs> right. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't I did, wasn't involved in any of that. So no one told me how I'm supposed to do it. So I just sort of did my right. own thing. Uh, only with the burden of adulthood do I now know what is not allowed. Um, that's, you know, subsequently pulled me down into just playing games normally.
<laughs> and now you need a website and a logo and all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> so now let's talk chapter two. So act one is over. Well, let's go to chapter two. You're just finishing high school. So chapter two came when I was in college. Uh, obviously, okay. I'd left that group behind. I mean, I, I still was really excited about d and I uh, started a club in college uh, called Adventurers Wanted because there was no D&D club, you know, at where I went to school. So I made my own uh, because I really wanted to keep running. And that yep. pff, that worked out and it was a club and it had university backing and I got to buy rule books with money that nice. wasn't mine. It was great. But one of the mo- and in addition to that, I kept doing live. A- I was still involved in live action role playing games. Some of them uh, local. I brought a lot of friends uh, from college at the time on long drives up to Massachusetts. Cause that what I, you know, I went to college in Pennsylvania, but we did the long eight hour drive to the LARPs I knew up and around there. So we were involved in that, um, that, uh, involvement from a lot of those people has actually spawned a very active LARP community in and around the Pennsylvania area where oh, there really great. wasn't one before just because I infected so many of those people <laughs> with all of the things that games could be. But uh, most probably most significant to what I'm currently doing in gaming was one particular vacation where I went to visit some friends of mine in Boston. And one of my friends said, hey, do you want to play a role playing game with us? It's called Lacuna. Um, mm. The full name of that game in particular, I believe, is Lacuna Part One, The Beginning of the Mystery and the Girl from Blue City. And we sat down and we played this amazing game of secret agents and a strange city that we were operating within. And I was totally hooked on how imaginative and how weird and how interesting this game was and saw that it was like a 75 page rule book. If even at the end, like 60 page rule book. Um, And that was when I was first exposed to what at the time were sort of called story games. This idea of you don't need 12 source books for D&D like I'd been operating with. Here's a whole other kind of game that is designed to deliver a very specific, very, uh, you know, intent driven experience around a table that is not just a toolkit for a million adventures, but is a very, very custom rule set divine designed for one scenario. Right. And, and I was hooked. I was immediately blown away. I started invest. I started like looking out and investing time in researching all these other story game systems that were big at the time. Uh, adding them to my collection, reading and reading and reading, and then eventually that turned to designing. So what? Uh, so a couple things. One, um, was there anything between D and D and these story games? So did you get into Vampire the Masquerade? Was a big one around those times. I mean, was there any other games that you got sucked into? Or was it right straight from D and D to story gaming? My uh, the the group that I played with in high school did. Uh, introduced me occasionally to some other games. One one of the big ones that they did introduce me to at the time was the saga of werewolf games. Right. So I played I played a little bit of vampire. I played a little bit of mage, um, and that's kind of continued. I've popped into the occasional mage or changeling campaign every now and again. They're ne- they never really last long. Usually go back to D and D. 
But at the time, I just sort of, because I didn't know any better, I just sort of looked at the vampire games and D&D as just sort of, oh, these are the two companies that make games right. like this. Um, when fourth edition happened in D&D, I, I, I did the split, as many people did, over to Pathfinder for a bit. Um, so I ran a plenty of campaigns there and played in some campaigns there. Um, so I did start to see some of these other big box games that I engaged with, uh, but nothing quite like story games until right. that first playthrough. So you play, I was Lacuna was the name of it, right? Yeah. The, the game is called Lacuna. It's by uh, Memento Mori is the name of the publishing company. Um, and it's this fantastic little game about, uh, about things I won't even say because I just, <laughs> I, I so much, just suggest that people go and play that game oh, because cool. it's amazing. And it's it's so full of spoilers if you talk about it. But good. I, I went from there on to a, a host of other games uh, that existed around the time, like Polaris was a big game that I played. Um, uh, I got introduced to all the games by the Bakers, Vincent Baker, yeah. McKay Baker, um, Epidiah Ravical's Dread, I became aware of and started playing around with so a lot of these games you know at that time there weren't all that many um in comparison to now where there is i think an amazing renaissance of independent designers that have grown out of kickstarter and itch.io and all these other platforms patreon and yeah. all these other platforms where they can create and we have a an embarrassment of riches <laughs> we really uh, out there right now with all of these uh, wild and creative ideas that I love to say. I absolutely love to say. So um, embarrassingly, I had a preconception about LARPing, which I came mm -hmm. by honestly due to lack of exposure. And I had Jason Morningstar on the show and uh, he straightened me right out and really <laughs> helped me understand exactly, you know, what, what LARPing really was versus, you know, the, the perception that you, that I've, you know, I've seen here and there as it's being mocked, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, do you, is there particular, so you, it sounds like we talked about foam swords and stuff, some fantasy LARPing. Has there been other types of LARPs that, that you've really enjoyed or you think have had an impact on you as, as a player or even as a creator? What are some big LARPs for you? Well, so, I, I mean, I have, I have a long history with LARPs um, and they have run the gamut, just like with tabletop role-playing games and how vast the variety is uh it is very much mirrored in larping there are you know thousands of genres and types of games and styles it, it's never ending and i could never hope to encapsulate all of it in my brain at once sure. but i have you know when i got started i think the very first larp i played which uh was you know not necessarily uh the best LARP I've ever played, but was what was local when I was young was a game called Realms. And that plays all over New England. And I started when I was, I think, 13, all the way up through when I graduated from college. Wow. And it was it wasn't a great, a great LARP, but it was very formative for me and just getting out there and doing the thing and was my introduction to the, to the hobby. Um, I met a great number of very close friends that I keep to this day. In the second LARP I played, which is a game called Legends, which ran out of Boston, and that game really showed me what a LARP could be. 
um, where it was much more centralized and there were ongoing stories and there was a huge history and it wasn't just sort of chaos. It was very focused storytelling experience that I played for again, like four or five, maybe even six or seven years um, invested in that game. And through those people, I actually wound up running or helping to run a game for six or seven years called Steam and Cinders, which was a <laughs> steampunk, uh, very high immersion steampunk game. Um, and from there, I also began to come into more of what are called parlor LARPs or short form LARPs that you don't play four times a year in a long weekend at a campsite for several years, but you play once for two hours in a small room with eight more, eight other people playing various right. characters. Um, and those are mu- these much, you know, you think about some of those larger campaign LARPs that just last for years and years and years. And I think back and I think of maybe the five to 10 really amazing moments, like a couple hours that were huge highlights of that story. And then we have all these other designers who have just made games that are like, we don't need 10 years. I can just give you that moment in two hours. I'll just give you that exact moment. Uh, And then we don't have to worry about the rest of it. Like that's what you're here to, to have that experience with. So I am still exploring everything that LARP has to offer. I'm playing, you know, I've been playing games that are never ending. I've played games or help run games that have a set, you know, four year, five year, six year structure. I've played games you can finish in an afternoon. Um, There's uh, pulling out specific names probably wouldn't do much uh, to help your audience or you. But uh, Jason Morningstar is a great name to mention in relationship to LARP because I've played a lot of his LARPs that he just that are just decks of cards and you sit around a table or sit in a room um, and and play around with that. I mean, it's it's so accessible now with creators like Jason that you can have a uh, have a LARP in your sitting room for a couple hours when your friends come to visit. It's incredible. So let's talk about the design itch a little bit, Stephen. So, yeah. you know, you're you're playing uh, on the table and away from the table. Um, and at some point, where where did the gravity well start? When did you start saying, I want to create more than just at the table or I want to create more than just this afternoon at the LARP? I, I want to create something that other people can consume there was i feel like not that long after i was introduced to story games got it Uh, i had this realization after buying a bunch and reading through them i thought this is doable Uh, I, i could do this and i had helped to create you know i've been running tabletop games forever i have had a ton of experience running games coordinating events all of these things I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed designing uh, for LARPs and things like that, writing rule systems for live action role playing games. I thought this is something that I can do. And uh, my first experience, the first sort of moment that the the moment that 10 candles sort of came into being um, was when I was playing a game called Polaris. Polar, now, I, I have to clarify, there are, I guess, now two tabletop role-playing games called Polaris. Uh, there is one that I'm specifically referring to by P.H. Lee, which uh, is Polaris Chivalric Tragedy at the Utmost North. 
Um, it was released titles. in 2005. Um, and this game, from this game, I got a spark of inspiration that was actually in a large way unrelated to the game entirely. How but so? then, uh, so what I had done was I had run this game for some friends and I decided that this game is very ritualistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has ritualistic phrases that guide it and resolve conflicts. It is a game where you really don't roll dice. You negotiate through conflicts. Uh, and what I decided I wanted to do to emblemize that ritual was to buy a, a very a tall stem candle and light it at the start of the session and blow it out at the end of the session. And nice. our entire session would sort of be played by the light of this candle. Um, and that would be because I'd run some D&D games like d- dungeons in D&D where I'll light candles and dim the lights I'm like that's really immersive. I come from yeah. a background of theater of right. live action role playing games. I know that immersion is really important. I try to bring that to the table whenever I can. So I had this idea for, well, let's bring that candle here. Let's do that. And somewhere along the way, you know, it doesn't say in the rule book to do that or anything, but somewhere that stuck in my head of playing a role-playing game by the light of a candle that's just immersion 101 right there that'll get that'll get people drawn in uh it's a lot harder to break out of that immersion when you just do something that simple yeah that idea then grew into well what if the what if that was a rule what if you know your role-playing session only lasted the light of a candle and not even like a big candle a little candle right Now, along the way, a lot of the design of Polaris and a lot of other games helped inform, uh, I think, some of the roots that also grew into Ten Candles. The ritual, the tragedy, um, things like that also stuck around and helped inspire me. Uh, But oddly enough, it was that candle that sort of, you know, lit the spark, both literally and metaphorically, uh, to make Ten Candles happen. So the, the, the candle uh, turns into, you know, candles being a mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or having that thought that, that we could do the candle more than just atmosphere. It could be part of the game. The first thing I would like to get a sense of before we dive even further is, sure. is horror part of this conversation from you from the beginning? Or is you thinking strictly mechanics? Um, it, it, was the theme in, in developed in tandem here or did this idea happen on its own and, the, and thematically 10 candles, you know, as a horror game came later. Does that make sense? It, yeah, no, it, it all grew in tandem. I Got think it. Uh, it, there were a bunch of small decisions that all informed each other. Um, and the game grew out of that idea. I, when I tend to think about design, you know, when I was first making 10 candles, And you asked me, well, what are your design pillars or how do you what's your theory behind how you design? Couldn't have told you throughout the entire, entire design of 10 candles. I'd be like, I don't know. This seems like it's fun. I'm just doing I'm just making a fun game. Right. Weird. Like now, in retrospect, I can look back and be like, ah, yes, I can see all the very intricate decisions I made based on game theory. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. Of course, um, of course. But <laughs> everything sort of grew together. It, it was an amorphous blob of a game idea. And when I had the idea of, you know, okay, there's candles and the game stops when the candles go out. What kind of 
game is this? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, if we play it only by the light of the candles, that's pretty spooky. So it would probably be horror. I wasn't like setting out to make a horror game. Got it. I just knew I wanted to make a game. And this was the first idea that sort of came to me. It very quickly became, OK, this is probably a horror game. But at the time, it wasn't necessarily a tragic horror game. It was probably more in the survival horror genre. I hadn't really crystallized what would make this game what it is or what would be important about it. It was largely mechanic based at the start and what those mechanics would support and be able to support really well. And then the more fine tuned shaping of 10 Candles came later as I was uh, embellishing upon those basic ideas. So pre the beginning of those 10 candles of the yeah. single candle and everything, had you either, either storyteller or in themes within D and D and some of the other games had horror as a genre been a part of something that you have grabbed onto. Uh, I'm trying, because one of the things I'm trying to get a sense of is whether you were a horror player or mm-hmm. GM before 10 candles, right? Or did, or was this also really your, your first deep dive into it as a, as a storytelling genre? I was an immersion GM. Okay. I was not, no specific genre ever jumped out of me. Mostly what I was engaged with was fantasy. Got and it. fantasy certainly has horror elements. And I certainly wanted to bring that. But I, from my experience with tabletop, And my experience with live action and theater, it all came down to immersion, whatever the genre might be. So when I realized that I had sort of happened upon a mechanic here that could that just bled immersion. Right. um, Horror was uh, horror is uh, a really hard game to immerse people, a hard genre to immerse people in. Uh, but it was the one that sort of unquestionably was the best use of the mechanics as I'd come up with them at the time. So it was a no brainer to do that. But I'm not like a horror guy. I don't right. come from, you know, oh, I, I love horror. I watch horror movies every week. I'm like, that's not really me. I, I like a lot of genres. <laughs> um, but that was the one that fit really well for this. So. As you start to piece it together on your own, when is the first time that someone else sees this and and when does that happen? What condition is the game in before it goes from out of your head and maybe to a notebook to I want to throw this at you and I'm not even talking to them playing it. Like when you start to have a conversation about it, when does that happen? Early, late? It, It happens fairly early. There are two, I think, two critical moments where. 10 Candles was seen by others for the first time. One of them was to my girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, who I shared the idea with, and she thought it was uh, ridiculous. And no one, <laughs> no one would ever. <laughs> it was just not a, good, not a good idea. <laughs> just a horrible idea. Which is a theory that she continued to espouse (laughs) up until I launched the Kickstarter project. And then when it was received the mild success, but success that it did. Oh, that's great. She said, oh, all right, I was wrong. (laughs) 
I guess I guess some people might enjoy that. I guess there's as um, many idiots out there that are like you. Sure, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I stand corrected. Oh, that's um, great. But she, so I, I shared the idea with her, and I ran the first ever version of that game as a very rough um, play test with her and her two roommates, Shelly and Dom, uh, my wife Nay, and myself. We played it, and that was, I can say. Uh, you know, unless people have been going off book, it is the only time that I have ever run a game of 10 candles where everyone survived at the end, uh, or at least some of them did. Uh, right. Because I, I, at that time, I didn't know it wasn't a survival game. Right. I hadn't pieced that together yet. They all got away safe. Yeah. Well, most of them did anyway. Um, they survived. No one has survived since. Um, but I, we played it, we played with a, a really rough early version of the dice rules we played with, but the idea of it, like I have that, you know, alpha rule book somewhere in my, mm -hmm. in my collection of things, like two or three printed off pages, um, called 10 candles. There were 10 candles on the table. We played in the dark. All of that was there. game one. The right. mechanics weren't really there, except that I knew the candles were going to be counting down. Um, probably the longest game of it I've ever run because the early dice rules, it was a slow game. Um, but uh, I mean, the candles eventually darkened anyway, so that worked out. Yeah. But they they had fun. They enjoyed it. It was it was fine. I mean, it was a game and it kind of worked. And the even though a lot of the ritual wasn't there, a lot of the. Um, little tips and tricks and little hacks to get that immersion through the roof weren't there. It was very rough, but it, it worked really well. That was one of the two first touchstones. So talking about that one, it, you know, it's the first exposure they played. It sounds like it went well, all things considered, right? Yeah. As you walk away of that and you digest it, right? You digest the entire session. You start to, to, to question some things. You start, uh, you know, ideating what, what was the impact to the next iteration at that point? So what were some of the immediate changes as a direct result of sitting with your then girlfriend and, and her friends? What was the, what was the next step? The next step was, uh, and many, many steps after was really figuring uh, were two things. One was trying to figure out how these dice were. Yeah. Um, because I knew they didn't, but I didn't exactly know how they would. So there were many iterations of how the dice worked over the over the years. And the second being, I think everyone just needs to die um, at the end of this game. Uh, what made you decide that? I, I realized that. So a lot of the rules that I was playing with, one of the things I'd taken away from story games was this idea that doesn't exist in big box games that is about giving players a tremendous amount of narrative control. And I knew that I wanted to do that right away. Um, and there was a, uh, there was a dice system that I'd kind of modeled uh, my dice system after at the time uh, called inspectors, which oh, is, okay. uh, which is also by Jared Sorensen, the same person <laughs> who wrote Lacuna, Memento Mori. I was I, I think uh, Jared is an amazing designer. I so I owe a lot of a lot of uh, thanks to Jared. In this. Sure. Um, but uh, there was a rule system in inspectors that was all about, you know, you roll to see your success. But if you roll really well, you also get to have a word in what that success looks like. 
I, I can't take claim for that. That right. was Jared's idea. That's an inspector's. Jared might have gotten it from somewhere else. I don't know. But that's where I learned about it. Yeah. So right away, I knew I wanted that. I wanted players to have a lot, a lot of narrative control in the game. And that doesn't play well with a survival horror game. Mm. Because if, you, if there is a chance to win, uh, players will always try to do so because that's what games are. Right. And I realized right away after that first session that those two ideals could not play well. It would always, one would always ruin the other. So I needed to remove one of them and I wanted to keep that idea of player control in telling the story, which meant that they couldn't have control over the ending. That had to be just what it was that had to be this tragic ending um, so that players could really have the freedom to play in the sandbox, but to not go against the storyteller, to not have this combative relationship uh, but instead to work together. And that from that change, I saw an immediate reflection in, okay, this game, this feels so much better yeah. than anything else that I've tried. Well, it, it's, a, it's amazing to me because I know exactly what you're talking about as far as, you know, that expectation, like I want my character to live, right? I, I want to quote unquote win the game. I think you do a very good job of making it really clear <laughs> right from the very beginning of setting those expectations. And it's fun because, you know, suddenly I saw everybody at the table just go, Oh, okay. Like mm-hmm. there's no fight or anything. It's like, okay, so that's what we're going to do. And they get to ride their characters. Like they stole them to steal that, steal yep. that phrase, which is really nice. Um, so you said, you know, there was a second large moment where, where this thing hit the table. Can you take me to that next big one? So the second moment was not really uh, hitting the table in the traditional sense. Okay. I brought this game to a PAX East. I had gone to an early PAX East, this was probably back in like, gosh, early, you know what? I'm not going to even guess because I'm going to be wrong, but it was brought to a PAX East. I was there. I actually got a ticket to uh, PAX East because of Luke Crane, author of Burning Wheel, yep. Mouse Guard RPG. Luke had gotten me in to, uh, he had posted on Twitter hey, can anyone come to PAX East and demo Mouse Guard RPG for me? I love that game so yeah. much. So I, not having ever met or talked to Luke Green before, uh, responded, yes. Uh, and he brought me in to do some demoing of Mouse Guard RPG. And I knocked it out of the park because I'm a, an amazing GM. But that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> but what I also brought with me was kind of a copy of the early, earliest edition of 10 candles that I had at the time. Right. Uh, and this one had had a little bit more written into it. I'd printed it off. I'd stapled it together like a real book. I had a few copies of it and I went to, I, I chatted with Lucrane about it, I think, but the big moment came when, so there was a uh, booth there called the Indie Bazaar and the Indie Bazaar was connected with the burning wheel booth and was staffed by a number of indie RPG creators that all pooled their resources to sort of have this booth together so they could sell their products. So 
Um, Joshua A.C. Newman was the person who ran the booth, who designed like Shock and a bunch of other great mm-hmm. games. Um, the Bakers were there. Vincent Baker, McGay Baker, Epidiah Ravicol, Emily Care Boss. Like it was the who's who of yeah. classic story games. It was an amazing group of people. And I walked up and I introduced myself and I said, I, I, I don't exactly remember, but it was something along the lines of, I feel like I'm soliciting, but I just wanted to come up and talk to all of you because I love so many of your games and I'm writing a game and I would love someone to take a look at it maybe and give me some feedback about what's worked for you and what hasn't. Because I think this game is kind of in the sphere of what y'all make. Right. Um, I'd love, I'd love some feedback. So they were all obviously deeply busy, but I did through that connection. I connected with them on Google Plus. Remember that? Google Plus, yeah. That's where indie games lived at the time. Yeah. And they invited me at the time to some I don't even remember what they called it, but uh the the bakers sort of coordinated this semi-regular thing which was like story game design and coffee um and they're like we have these things at like a super local uh cafe in pioneer valley in massachusetts you should come by sometime here's an invite so i did the thing that any self-respecting fanboy would do and i drove like three hours to join them That's for awesome. like 30 minutes of coffee one yeah. time. Um, and it was the, the bakers were, di- were there and Joshua AC Newman was there and a bunch of other people from various avenues of creation. And they all looked at me like I was crazy when I told them how long I'd driven, but I had my game and I passed out a couple copies and people were looking through it. And all of these game designers who I super deeply, deeply respect after I gave like a five minute pitch, were excited about my game. And so that was you, all I needed. What were you feeling at that moment? I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, obviously for them, it was probably much lower stakes. Like these, they, they probably didn't consider themselves to be design celebrities sure. or anything like that. Like they're just friends having coffee. Yep. It was, so I was definitely completely overloaded in the moment. Um, but I was when like Joshua E.C. Newman was sitting next to me and looking at my game and, I was walking him through how the dice worked and he started plotting out graphs on my paper to figure out like dice probabilities of how the game would shape out. And it was like, oh, this is really interesting. And people were like talking about it and excited about it. And I was over the moon. I was just I was blown away. Um, And there like wasn't a lot of feedback, but some people took copies of the games. They're like, hey, I'll read this at home and things like that. And. While I didn't hear a tremendous amount from them, the feedback that I heard was really positive and really supportive and was just, hey, make this, make this game. I, it looks really good. You've got you've got something here. Wow. Play test it, play test it, play test it. But like, do do make it. Don't give up on it. Um, so that my first play test was enough to help me really find the heart of the game. And that was enough to carry me the next two to three years to making the game a reality. Uh, it was a lot of work, but that just, that was enough to buoy me up for the that entire process. Yeah. Yeah. When was the first time you saw the game played and you weren't running it and not playing it? And what was that like? That took a while. Yeah. Um, 
I, whenever I was involved with it after its publication, I, you know, I occasionally heard about it being played at a convention here or there. And that was always very exciting, but I never really saw it being played. I think my first real exposure to the game really being played by others took a while. Mm -hmm. And the first really crystallized moment of that happening was actually when I saw it being played on Twitch. Right. uh, By a channel Hyper RPG was the channel that was playing it. Um, That was that channel was or at least that game. I think the channel as well was run by Zach Eubank, who was a uh, actually like one of the main tech people, basically the stream manager in the early days of Critical Role. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was on like Geek and a big part of the Geek and Sundry crew back then. And then Hyper RPG was sort of this own separate thing. And I think that I had seen like uh, a couple, there were a couple uh, independent one-off games of it that I caught on Twitch here and there. And that was bewildering. And then the first really crystallized memory was this, uh, was a campaign of it that was run by Hyper RPG where they actually ran 10 sessions of uh, 10 candles. And each of those sessions, I think, took like, they didn't finish a session in a single night. So each session took maybe two to three streams. Yeah. And they played through 10 full games of it as this massive, you know, interconnected, strange uh, season of 10 candles. Yeah. And it was unlike anything that even I could have imagined. Right. And it, it was, it was just, it blew me away. I was in the audience as often as I could be. I was having a ton of fun. And Zach was doing things with the game I I never even really would have imagined. And can we talk about that a little bit more? Because that's what fascinates me is when 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 the when you let go of the game and it, and and it's uh, John, the way John Harper put it on the show was great. He says, you know, I, I make instruments and it's great to listen to other people play them. Right. And so you're not there teaching Zach how to play the game. You're not explaining to Zach. Zach has got your book. Yeah. And then Zach is playing your instrument. So what what did you see him do that you're like, wow, I never thought that could be in the game or I never thought of that or or there's a gap between what I thought the game was and what Zach is playing. Yeah, I mean, I I it was the first time that I'd ever seen the story grow beyond a single one shot. Right. I think that that is really what Zach did that I just haven't. I, ha- I hadn't seen anyone do before. I have seen someone do it since uh-huh. uh, because I know that uh, another uh, po- possibly even more well-known example of this is that Ivan Van Norman ran, again, 10, 10 candle sessions for Geek and Sundry. Right. So that happened after the hy- Hyper RPG 10 sessions. Um, he had run it as well, which was also amazing to watch. Uh, but this idea of this interconnected story taking what 10 Kindles is, which is really meant as a one shot. Yeah. But can can we examine an apocalypse or some horrible thing from 10 very distinct, very different angles and tell a story that we learn more about what's at the heart of it over the course of these 10 vaguely interconnected stories, but still definitely interconnected stories. 
Uh, so that that was just amazing to see. And, you know, it, it again, certainly wasn't the first uh, probably game I'd ever seen. I think that even there was a a YouTube channel. I think it was called like Nerds and Stuff. That might have actually been the very first time I'd ever seen it played. But and I was so thrilled by it. But that was definitely the first time I saw someone take it and make it into something so different that it is now stuck in my mind as like this was when 10 Candles really arrived. Oh you know, on the internet. Um, yep. And that was just amazing to see. Yeah, that, that is incredible. So obviously for all of the time, the 10 candles has been alive and out there. You have, you get questions about it, right? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times as a creator, when someone asks you a question, what the question they ask says a lot about where they are as far as understanding mm -hmm. your game. So I'd be curious, can you think of what types of questions have, have you been asked to let you know, they get it. Like I've created a curated experience here. I, I, I've deliberately created 10 candles, you know, as a story game that is very focused. What types of questions do you get asked that you go? Yeah, you, you, you understand what, what we're doing here. Uh, I thought this was the, the much easier question to answer is what questions let you know that people don't get it. Oh, that's uh, next. Because I, I certainly have plenty of those. Um, I tried to start positive. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's. A lot of the time people, a lot of what I hear about is people saying, you know, I get a lot of, hey, here's what my idea is for a module. Uh, people will pitch me on here's here's what I want to want to give to my players. Right. And based on how the, the longer the module is, the more I, I get a little uh, maybe shorten that up a little bit. But some people give me like the real quick pitch. Yeah. It's like, this is where they are. This is where they're going. I thought this would be fun to throw at them. What do you think? It's like, yes, short and sweet, right. evocative. All you need is that really good, juicy hook and you're golden. Yeah. And when people come up with those good, good hooks, uh, it's like, yeah, you, you've got it. You're ready to go. That's all you need is that hook. You don't need to over plan. And when people realize that that's the moment I often get like, yeah, you, you know what you're doing. You know that you don't have to do any, like the work that you're going to do is at the end of the session. That's the work. That's the thing, Steven, that I did not. So there's one thing I love about this is you can read a game and it's, you have to play it. Right. And I think one of the biggest things that I figured out running the game was I was nervous going into it. Like, I don't know, like I don't have enough fuel here, right? I don't have enough hooks. I don't have nothing. Man, I threw the meat out in the middle of that table just to get them started. And mm -hmm. it was wonderful to watch them pick up and share the weight. And we ended up really just having some amazing moments as we went through that. And at the end, I'm like, okay, now I understand why you have these half page prompts. Mm -hmm. Really, I mean, they're they're fat prompts at the end of the yeah. book right and that that makes total sense to me what um so what's the number one th i mean outside of um scenario design is there other things that that you that make you go you know what i don't i don't know if you quite understand what we're doing here or let me give you some advice what are yeah. some things that how, how you've come across i think the biggest one is people will say well do i have to really tell them that they're going to die <laughs> and it's like yes it is it is so if you take nothing else from me, it is so critically important that they know how this ends. Everything falls apart if that doesn't happen. Um, whenever I hear, you know, that they want to keep it a surprise or anything like that, 
or that they want to take some power away from the players or anything like that. That's when it's like, no, it's it's so critical. Like, yeah. listen, if you if you want a game with a surprise ending, there are so many amazing options out there. Like you should not be playing 10 candles if you want any of your players to have a chance to survive. If you want the end to be unknown or up to the dice. Uh, like go, go play Dread by Epidiah. Right. It's amazing. It's the best survival horror game out there, and I will die on that hill. It's so good. You want you want body or existential horror? Go play Bluebeard's Bride. It's right. perfect. It's a perfect game, and you will get that, and you won't know how it ends, and it'll be a mystery, and it'll be great, and it'll be so good. Don't 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 do that with Ten Candles yeah. though. You will your players will hate it. You will hate it. You won't have a good time. Do you spend time with 10 candles anymore? Or is, is that, have you put the top on it? Are are we done with 10 candles or do you anticipate there ever being another, a need for another edition or more, more forward? Or is it, is it time to, to, to start um, focusing on other things? Well, 10 candles isn't probably isn't gone forever. Um, There, while I don't, see the rules system in vast need of fixing right um there's definitely parts of the rules you know i've i've had a word document open since launch uh on google drive that is just questions i've been asked and advice i've been given or you know anywhere where things are fuzzy or confusing or just needlessly complicated you know, I'll get a lot of conversation, you know, a lot of people will come and tell me like, why, why do moments have to be in your stack of cards? Why can't we just have them to the side so that the narrative can let people live their moments when it makes the most sense in the story? And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> like, I tried a thing. It's okay if that didn't work for you. Like yep. you don't, you can, you can do that. Maybe I, so uh, there's a lot in there that could probably be clarified. There's a lot in there where I could probably give alternate options right there in the rule book to let people know, hey, it's okay if you don't do this. Because sometimes I feel players want rule books to give them permission to change things. Um, So if there was a second edition, and I've certainly talked about, you know, I've certainly talked and thought about doing a second edition someday, it would probably be a much more expansive product, right? It would be the rules as written with clarifications, small updates here and there, um, a lot of extra permission um, to to change things. It would also be a wealth, a a much larger wealth of knowledge and guidance for GMs that are picking up the game. It would be, you know, not 10 modules, maybe like a hundred modules because there's so many ideas for great modules out there. And I know people would enjoy being able to read through that. So there's a lot more that I could add to it and make it even like a multi books box set and sure. really make the, the best version, big air quotes around this for the listening audience, <laughs> best version of 10 candles that, you know, I, I could dream up and then, Oh, great. We're done with that now. Like I can't release more, but I wanted to revisit it and just make it something a bit bigger because there is more I could give. Right. Even though the game itself, while also being like, hey, if you own the own, if you own the old edition, you're fine. You don't need Nothing's to buy broken. this like you're yeah. good. Yeah. Um, 
Beyond that, though, there is actually a game pre-pandemic that I brought to a playtesting convention, really bare bones of a take on Ten Candles called Ten Candles Mysteries, Ooh. which is a uh, which is a, a take on Ten Candles that is uh, not a horror game, but it's a detective mystery solving game. Um, because hilariously, at PAX, at a PAX I was working, someone came up to me, they asked me about Ten Candles, and I explained that it was a horror game, and they said, oh, horror, my wife would never play that with me. She doesn't like horror. Could you play it, like, as a mystery game? And I said, no. And then I put my <laughs> finger to my chin and said, maybe. And, uh, and I had this idea for yeah. a, a, a potential alternate variation on the rules. The, the 10 second pitch is it's like 10 candles, but in reverse, where you start with no lights lit and the GM has all the power and the players have none. So instead of them wrapping up the game at the end, they set the case and the mystery up front. They have all the power and knowledge. But as the players gain clues and leads, they slowly light the candles oh, as it shines cool. light on their the mystery that they're solving. Um, and they gain more of that power. So then at the end, the the GM, the storyteller, has no idea yeah. what the solve is for the mystery. And they allow the players to put together the solve that is most makes the most sense given the story that they've told. So right. Have you read Brindlewood Bay yet uh, by uh, Cordova? I have not. So uh, I'm just in, put that in the back of your mind. Um, yeah. The way that um, Jason handles mysteries and the idea of um, because it, it's it's essentially it's uh, it's it's murder she wrote um, in in Lovecraft Country. Right. Yeah. So you, you, you play old ladies that are part of a book club and you solve murders in your little Massachusetts, New England town. Yeah. But w- what is fascinating about Jason's game um, and and it's it, it's iterated in a couple of on uh, one other game of his, too. Um, I'm not going to get into it. Too. Just check it out. I think I think you yeah. would find it interesting because it, it, it there's 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 a small thread here that I think you would yeah. see between what you just told me and that made me think of that. So any Hulu. So noted. one thing I'd be interested about too. So you've got kind of a, maybe there's another 10 candles and this yeah. is what there. Right? So it's kind of swimming around in the back of your brain. Do you ever find yourself reading a book, right? Reading an RPG and going, Oh, maybe this is how I would approach another day. Maybe this is how I would present, or I like how this person did this. And that would be an interesting way to present 10 candles. Have you, have you had anything that you've come across this, that you've gone, Oh, okay. Maybe this is how I would approach a second edition. Um, well, I, I have a, there's a little story there and also just generally, um, well, one thing I will say is that I think most inf- the most informative example of how I might handle maybe the production and presentation of a second edition, if any of what I described in a multi-books book box set sounds familiar, is because I own, I, I rarely go all in on Kickstarters, <laughs> but I sure did with Bluebeard's Bride. And oh, that yeah. is just a, a beautiful piece of art in how they put that book together. Um, and how they designed it and how they presented it. I mean, it's it makes me look at 10 Candles because I I did the formatting of 10 Candles all by myself. 
Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, but I'm like, I kind of have an eye for design. I can kind of put this together. And it was fine. I mean, people don't necessarily need that, but I look at games like Bluebeard's Bride and I'm like, this yeah. is just so, so pretty. And it's yeah. so, <laughs> it's so well designed and it's right. so, you know, uh, cleverly designed with how everything's constructed and how everything's presented. Absolutely. Right. Uh, what If I were to put out a second edition, it would be, I would Inspired. want to aspire to yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but to answer kind of a question that you didn't ask, but Please. a little bit was in there. Um, I read RPGs all the time and they absolutely guide how I design. Um, right. And one of the biggest examples of that is I had, when I was like doing the Kickstarter for 10 candles, I had the game written. The game was done. Um, it was ready to go. And I was at a PAX during that time. I was taking uh, uh, all of these. PAX is like the only con I go to. So that's why I keep talking about it. <laughs> I was at a PAX East. I was with the Indie Bazaar because I actually boothed with them after cool. this conversation for many years. And I was cu- like just telling people about the Kickstarter like I had nothing else I could do because I didn't have anything there with me. Um, and while I was there, I went over to a booth of indie games and I picked up The Quiet Year by Avery Alder. And I read through that little rule book. Yep. And like I, I was just sitting down at the booth or, or maybe just like on a break. I read the entire rule book from cover to cover. And I went, oh, oh, no. Yeah. I have to go home and rewrite my rule book yeah. because the Avery taught me, I've never met the woman, but Avery yeah. taught me how to write a rule book. Yeah. There was so much voice. Yeah. There was so much of her voice in that rule book. There was so much of so much ritual in how she wrote. Uh, there was just so much to it. Um, texture it's just yeah yes yeah it uh, it it blew me away so much i i had written a rule book right uh but avery had written a story about about this game and it was so incredible to me that i i went home and i basically started from scratch no kidding um you know just going back to sentence one and completely re, re I'm like, I'm going to put myself into this rule book yeah. in a way that I didn't know I was allowed to Isn't do. Isn't that something? So a lot of, uh, and some of the time, so I have to give continuous and never ending um, props and thanks to Avery, who again, I've never spoken with in real life. <laughs> I've never spoken with in real life. But I I cannot stop thanking her because one of the one of the things I get the most sort of feedback on from people who just have picked up the book, they will say like the the first like couple of paragraphs in what you need to know right at the beginning, the first like two paragraphs about what this game is hooked me so deeply and so yep. immediately that I'm, I think you're an amazing writer. I really love this. I yep. get endless compliments about it. I'm like, that, that was, that was, did not exist until I read The Quiet Year and I went back yeah. and I said, I'm allowed to do this. Yep. I'm allowed to just be poetic 
and dark and have my my voice in there uh, to talk about it. So nothing has really shaped what 10 Candles looks and feels and sounds like when you're reading through the rule book more than that moment. And that happens to me all the time. Yeah. There's a there's a hundred other little examples of that happening to me. Um, it's so, so true that we all, every indie designer just steals mercilessly from every other one and we all love it and we're yeah. all made better for it. No, and see, and you know, the, 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 what I love, you know, and so very briefly, Stephen, I left RPGs for like 15, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a huge gap. And when I left, it was all D&D, a little bit, a touch of Pathfinder, a little bit of Call of Cthulhu, a lot of GURPS and stuff. I go away for 15, 20 years, the forge happens, storytelling, you're like, and I mm-hmm. come back and I'm like, yeah. holy shit. Like, yeah. what the hell's going on right now? And I, I've just been amazed at a lot of things. One, the community aspect, you know, went from we're going to play and not tell anybody that we play games and we'll like do it, you know, in, in secret to it's everywhere. But the thing that I think is so fascinating is the, is the strength of the community. And, and it's not only the community of players, the small player groups, but the community of designers and, you know, community copies and, you know, putting out SRDs and without commissions involved. And it's really fascinating. And I'd be curious, do you have a sense of because we don't really see that in the same way in miniature gaming, right, or any other type mm-hmm. of tabletop gaming? It's something that's very exclusive to RPGs, this this sense of community. What do you think drives that? Do you have a sense? Uh because all of us want to make it into a career and all of yeah. us also know that we never can. <laughs> I mean, it's, We want to live the uh, lie together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we all just exist in this uh, pretend space where we yeah. can keep doing this. No, I mean, it. I think, I, I think being, uh, I think designing these kinds of games and this might not be the pop, the, the regular and popular opinion, but I think designing these kind of games and having them be, you know, what we consider to be some amount of successful, it requires a level of vulnerability that a lot of other design spaces don't yeah. require from the designers. Um, it is it is so much us. It is so much, um, you know, we are our writing teams, marketing teams, uh, designers. We are the producers of the project. Uh, so many of us just don't have anyone backing us at yep. all in this. Um, there is such a level of putting yourself out there that just doesn't exist with larger scale operations. Um, and, you know, you'll even, even with some of the comp, you know, again, air quotes, companies in the indie design space, it's not as much of a risk for them. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, for those of us who are uh, writing sad things on index cards and making these games, it is, it's very much just, it's just putting yourself out there. There's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of that. And I think that when, because we, we know what, all, we kind of understand, we have that mutual understanding of what everyone's going through. I think there is so much more of almost just like, it, it feels like an ethical requirement, an emotional requirement 
to go and support and to lift up others in our community. It's it's impossible not to. Right. Uh, which I think is why whenever there's any amount of drama or discord in the community, it's so strange yeah. because we all know that we're hanging on by threads and working day jobs that we hate and trying to make ends meet as best we can with this thing that we're deeply passionate about that doesn't support us 99 times out of a hundred. Yeah. Uh, I think that that share, I mean, there's something to be said for a shared struggle. Uh, and I think that that binds people together. And we, you know, I, I was told very early on that a large part of being an indie designer is taking one crisp $5 bill <laughs> and passing it around between creators over and over and over again, because that's just what we do. We see how much work is required. We see how much labor, physical, mental, emotional that that puts into it. And the least we can do is support each other in making this art uh, and trying to scream and yell over and over. This is worthwhile. You should take a look at this, folks, because it's good. That's really, really cool. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk to Steven about another game that I came across. It's an ash can called To Serve Her Wintry Hunger. We'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So I come back from camping and um, I had never played anything like 10 candles before. And I, and, and what's funny about it is it had been built up pretty good. You were set, you were set up pretty, pretty well to fail uh, because I'd heard, (laughs) you know, heard all the stories and like uh, a lot of my patrons and a lot of my audience knows how much I love horror. 
It's my favorite genre of, of RPGs. I'm like, have you played 10 K nails? Have you played 10 K? Fine, I'll buy the goddamn game on it, right? <laughs> so I take it out to the campsite. Um, and I remember distinctly the, the next morning digesting it all and just realizing what a different experience it, it was. Um, and immediately went to explore what else I could grab of yours. And uh, I think I read four sentences of To Serve Her Wintry Hunger and I bought it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about it for those. Uh, there's probably people listening aren't as familiar with it. So a quick blurb. It's a dark fairy tale role playing game of snow and pity. And this dark fairy tale players take on the roles of wicked winter spirits hunting down a human lost in a deadly blizzard. Um, I don't know whether how much time you spent put it piecing that together but you're good at that hook man <laughs> like i read that i'm like okay all right how much is it print yes please um but um let's kind of do a, a briefer version of what we did with 10 candles so mm-hmm. at one point nothing of wintry hunger exists and then there's the acorn so what was the first acorn that turned into the what we currently have for wintry hunger Jonathan Walton Interesting. <laughs> was the acorn. Um, no, John, uh, Jonathan Walton was um, was a, a, a small part, of, but an important part of 10 Candles uh, when I was originally working on that, because I had at the time been looking for mentors. And uh, Jay Walt had made a post on his blog a while ago that was basically saying, I want to help young aspiring game designers find their way. Um, And this uh, post had come out maybe a year or two before I was really working on 10 candles, but I reached out and, uh, and he was willing graciously to take a look at the book and give me some feedback. And that was amazing. Um, So I'd sort of stayed in touch with him and, Along the way, he had at one point posted a, I must have been a tweet or something on, uh, probably on Google Plus, where he was putting together an anthology of games uh, and wanted to do a project where he was making games about winter. Interesting. Uh, And I had, at the time, no... Nothing but 10 candles. Um, but I thought this would be, you know, I'd done some game jams. I'd done, you know, some game contests where I had to sort of create something out of nothing. Uh, and over the course of a six hour design session, I wrote this game whole cloth out of my brain. Uh, I don't know where it came from. I don't know what dark forces inhabited me and made me write this game. But I had done a little bit of I had done a little bit of cursory research into Japan. Uh, well, not specifically into Japanese folklore, but into wintry folklore about okay. like winter creatures and things like that. And I had learned about a Japanese yokai called Yuki Ona, who was sort of this mistress of winter um, and read a bit about it and thought it was interesting and just wanted to write a game that was kind of a game, kind of a poem, kind of a story, uh, but that was playable and was deeply just uh, romantic in how I wrote it and uh, also a bit terrifying. And this game just came out of nowhere. uh, And I had a game in a day uh, that was like 14, 15 pages long. 
And that is sort of with very minimal changes, the, the version that exists today. So that's incredible. So you're telling me that um, I've got the PDF, my print copy is on its way. You're telling me if I grab that, if I break into your house tonight and steal that 15 pager and compare them, there's not that much difference. There's not that. I mean, a lot of the difference came to cleaning up the text, formatting it um, and, you know, little changes here and there in terms of, you know, how this character was made or how this question was phrased. But um, a lot of that came out of, you know, a handful of small playtest sessions I made where things just need to be streamlined here and there. And I needed to, you know, in one or two places, make it a little bit less poetically written and a little bit more focused on a clean game experience. Mm-hmm. And those handful of changes were really all I needed. <laughs> and the game, the game, you know, is still an ash can. So right. it is. I'm open to the idea that, you know, it's probably not that easy and there might still be some feedback coming in out there whenever uh, when this game has it, whenever this game does reach its final form. Uh, But uh, so I'm still open to all of that. But, yeah, it's not that different from the six hour design session that it it was born out of. So I haven't had a chance to play it yet, uh, Stephen. So mm-hmm. understand that my perspective is one of just reading it. And like I've mentioned, for me, reading a book and playing the game are two different experiences. But uh, two things that I was really taken um, by was one, it's very structured, um, uh, very prescriptive in its structure, right? One one GM, four players. And the perspective is very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Who the players play is very interesting. And and I guess in my head, um, I would have imagined that to evolved over time. But it sounds like like you were you were going to play as these four entities yeah. right from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The names of the spirits have not changed. That wow. was they they have been what they are since the beginning. Can you think in the times that you have either watched it, played or played it yourself or ran it yourself? Because I, I, because it's so unique, I want to try to give someone listening a sense of of a moment that you can remember. So, like, can you can you tell us um, a piece of a story or something you saw happening at the table that really kind of captures what you want, what you expect from this game? Because uh, I think yeah. it's so unique, Stephen. I uh, there is a convention called Metatopia which is a playtest convention run by um, some amazing people in New Jersey. It's been not doing in-person events, obviously because of, uh, you know, the world, but uh, there was a, there was a night uh, where myself uh, and Liz Brink and uh, who's uh, very well known in the indie design community and I think a couple, a couple other indie designers, and we had just sort of, we had woven a game together out of nowhere. Like it was 11 p.m. at night, and people wanted to play a game, and I said, "Well, I, I've got this game. Let's go and play it." So we we tottered off to a, a you know someone's room at the hotel, and we str- we just lay strewn about the room playing this game and telling this story. And there was I feel like there was a moment from that game where one of the players, like two of the players who were sitting on opposite sides of the same bed, physically began to embody these mischievous, dark spirits and were locked in a vicious um, transactional like uh, discussion 
about a fay bargain that they were extract that one party was extracting from the other and these negotiations were filled with name calling and <laughs> threats and horrible secrets that they were threatening to reveal about the other none of the you know this game takes 2 hours to play none of this was written down but i it invites players to just oh. get into the mindset of these braggart arrogant horribly evil creatures that are mocking each other and backstabbing each other and clawing to get ahead Uh, and whenever i have played when there's this moment that clicks where they players really just allow themselves to be these these horrible little monsters uh to each other and i i very intentionally try to set that up by even having the gm who's running the game be antagonistic and name calling to the players to set up this vibe of like, we're not friends. We are <laughs> monsters here. We are not a party. Um, and, yeah. And whenever I can see that, you know, I've seen that embodied in so many of the games of this that I've run. Uh, and it's beautiful to see. Cause I'm like, yep, you get it. You're, you are, you are playing in this, in this sandbox with me. No, nothing in the rules is telling you that you have to do it like this or that you have to role play it like this. Yeah. But, but the rules encourage it right uh with how they're written and whenever that clicks you can really tell when that clicks for a player so there's a lot of people listening Stephen, um that have only played with other players um you've played with players and you've played you just told me about a session with a bunch of designers Mm -hmm. what's different when a bunch of designers play a game and when a bunch of people who don't design games play a game What's what's really funny, what I found, especially at uh, conventions like Metatopia, which are designed as playtesting conventions. And right. if you go, you really are both there to show your games and to play in other people's games. I feel like there is an assumption that is understandable that people would make about this, which is you know, like, oh, if you get designers in your game who are, you know, if, if I see Jason Morningstar sit down at my table, which has happened before, you know, oh, no, Jason's going to like tear this game apart. Jason is going to come at this from a designer standpoint or, you know, a- any designer like they're really going to pick at the rules. They're really going to shake the foundations of this thing so deeply in this community. Is that not true? It's amazing. <laughs> so deep. So de- like people who come there just to play, they'll pick, they'll prod, they'll poke <laughs> at the rules because they think that's what they're supposed to do. It's right. a play test convention. But the designers will come and they'll be like, I see what you're trying to do here. I love it. And, and I'm, I'm going to just I'm going to lean so oh, much into it great. and I'm going to lift the hell out of this game and play <laughs> into it because I think that it will be more valuable for you to right. see than me being here as a designer. I am yep. here to support you and to just dive into this game and live it as fully as I can. So that you can see what that looks like and I can see what that feels like. And that backs up the conversation we had just before, right, about the community and about all of that. And the perspective has to be unique that allows them to say, I know what you're doing and let's go. Yeah, (laughs) that's cool. So the last thing I always like to talk about is, um, you know, we spend an hour or so talking about you making. I want to talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about you consuming. Um, I would like to get a sense of is there anything 
lately that you have grabbed on to uh, a TV show you've been watched, a book series that you couldn't put down, a video game that stole hours away from you or another RPG that you can't stop thinking about? What is something that has really got its hooks into you recently? Oh, I'm always horrible at these questions. Let me let me think, because there are there's some like TV shows I'll be deeply binging that I don't necessarily want to publicly admit sure. about. That's fair. Because uh, <laughs> I binge a whole bunch of garbage and I love it. Well, um, I, I watch <laughs> the housewife shows with my wife and <laughs> and I've decided that I just need to tell people that because um, I can't hide it anymore. Yeah, that's fair. No. Um, I let's see. I think what's something you've benched your proud of, Steve. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can actually, I can, I actually have something. I almost You're not ashamed I, of. I got it. <laughs> I feel like I have. I very rarely have anything to talk about when asked questions like this, but <laughs> I have actually been playing a role playing game recently, and it's one of those. Yeah, we get it. That came out like a decade ago, but I've sure. been, I'm playing it now. Sometimes it's hard for me to find a group, um, but I'm playing a two-player uh, campaign of Fall of Magic currently. And I've heard uh, of this, but I'm not familiar with it, so help me. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, so the Fall of Magic is designed by Ross Kalman. Um, it is obliteratingly good. It has no reason being this amazing. Um, I, I've talked about this game in, in panels that I've led before, uh, talking about emotion and how you can design mechanics oh. to elicit certain emotions, which is something that I'm very interested in from a design perspective. Um, and what Ross has done here is has designed um, a game that facilitates the emotions of awe and discovery um, and travel in a way cool. that I've like the, the excitement of traveling to new lands that I've never seen done so well. Um, but uh, the, the quick pitch on Fall of Magic is that the game itself is played on a map that you slowly reveal as you travel from the western edge of the map to the eastern edge of the map. And every place that you go to has uh, several locations, and each of those locations has scene prompts, and you tell the story of this journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and you are playing the roles of characters that are accompanying a magus or magus or however you pronounce it. Right. Um, who is traveling to the place where magic was born because in the <laughs> world magic is dying and the magus is dying with it. So you are the your characters are the uh, companions on this journey. You play a little bit the magus as well, but no one player really controls the magus. You all right. do collectively. And it's this jamless game of travel and exploration. Oh, that's and cool. it, it's one of those games that gives you very little yeah. except this map and these little scene prompts, but you create such an amazing organic story out of nothing. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. That's great. That's great. The closest thing I have to that is for the queen, but boy, that sounds really good, man. I might, I'm going to have to check that out. It's app. It, it's incredible. Um, and uh, w there are there's a version of it where you can buy, you know, it's expensive, but you can buy like a cloth map that you literally it's like a big scroll. And it's I mean, it's just it's it's unparalleled in tabletop experiences, at least that I've 
oh that's seen cool. before so um I uh so that's that's really what I've been playing. The the game the only other game that's really I mean I I play D&D all the time. I actually run uh one of the little side gigs I do on the side is that I run D&D 5th edition professionally. So yep. I have like a couple of groups that hire me to run games for them. Um the only other game that's really been sticking in my mind tabletop RPG wise is one that isn't actually out yet. Look at you. But I have been obsessed with um, the everything about it since its inception, which is Xeno Language, mm. uh, which is a game by Thorny Games. It's the same folks that did Sign and Dialect, which okay. are also incredible games. Uh, Xeno Language is a game that is inspired by the movie Arrival, which is my favorite movie of all time. Wow. It's a game about first contact with an alien species um, and learning how to communicate with them. But part of communicating with them involves a deep introspection into the emotional tableaus of the characters that are doing so. Right. Uh, and I'm obs- I'm obsessed with everything that uh these designers have ever made uh (laughs) dialect is one of my favorite games of all time so i have been deeply excited for xeno language um it was kickstarted successfully it's going to come out sometime soon i hope and i'm very pumped for it oh that's great so steven there is a lot of really really interesting fun and relaxing things to do on a wednesday night but somehow you made the mistake of coming on my show so i want to start by (laughs) saying thank you this has been um really fascinating i had questions coming in you've not only answered them but you've created new questions for me which is a good thing those are my favorite types (laughs) of interviews Um, so i really appreciate you making the time yeah of course And everybody listening, you already know the routine. You can scroll down right now. Everything we've talked about is linked. You're going to want to go pick up 10 candles if you're like the third, like one of three people that I haven't already sold on it. Um, But I really think that the big opportunity for a lot of you is to pick up the second game that we talked about. Um, I had to read it twice to really start to wrap my head around it. It's a very, very interesting game. So everything's linked below. Um, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. No, I, I've loved chatting about this. I, I feel like we could fill up a whole second episode chatting about more stuff. So that's no always question. a it's all, always a good feeling to have. <laughs> well, you made a huge mistake. I've got your email address now, so I'm going to get you sucked <laughs> into another. I'll get you sucked out of the game or onto the show again. Um, also, uh, very quickly, for those of you listening, this is the end. You listen to the whole thing. And I appreciate you doing that, too. Take care. You did it. Congrats. <laughs> episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floorheads my friend that was an amazing first segment that was great exactly what i love to happen on my show and i really can't thank you enough that was perfect yeah no i i I love talking so you're being very generous 
<laughs> really is great. Um, and, and and we went we went places I didn't anticipate, and it was super freaking interesting. This is absolutely perfect. Um, I do want we're an hour in. I want to get a sense of your time, so I know how much time to spend on this. I got I've got all the time in the world, okay, so okay. I'm I'm happy to chat for as long as you need. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, my plan is not to do a four hour show, but I I did want to be conscious of it in case that you had a hard stop. All right, so I'll bring us back. Uh, oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down, scroll down and yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.